0: Hello, my name's Justin LeCleur, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And will your heroes survive? You'll have to tune in next week. This has been The Important Cinema Club.
1: Last week on The Important Cinema Club, our heroes wrestled with the oeuvre of Carolee Schneeman.
0: A recap of last week's episode. So, Carolee Schneeman. I'm just Could you
1: imagine pulling a scroll out of yourself as an art piece? (laughs) God, what a world. Huh. Well, this week we're talking about cereals. What
0: cereals? Uh, well, Captain Crunch, oh, Fruit good, Loops. Good stuff. Yeah, that, that's the kind
1: of classic comedy that separates <laughs> us from the other podcasts.
0: Now nah, we're talking about the old-timey movie serials most popularized in the late 30s, early 40s. Stuff like Flash Gordon starring Buster Crab. The Adventures of Captain Marvel starring Tom Tyler. The Lone Ranger, Zorro. So many pulp heroes brought to the screen in little 15-minute chunks was a cliffhanger at the end meant to encourage young viewers to come to the theater next week to see how their hero gets out of this testifying problem.
1: Now, people may not quite know the concept of a serial because it is an antiquated form.
0: They know parodies of serials because that's essentially the only uh, way it's portrayed in popular culture now. So
1: beginning in the 1910s and going all the way to the early 50s, serials were part of the special bonus attractions that accompanied feature films. You know, you'd have your cartoon, you'd have your newsreel, short films, and a serial. Oftentimes they'd be 15 chapters and they tell one long continuous story broken up one per week.
0: First episode would usually be 30 minutes because it's setting up all the players, and then each subsequent episode would be 12 minutes with a three minute recap at the beginning of it.
1: And you'd get just a little bit more and they would always have a cliffhanger. You know, uh, Batman would be in a plane that was about to uh, about to crash and how did he survive? He'll have to come next week, and it turns out he survived in probably some cheat ways.
0: Uh, And this is from a long time ago, where going to the movies was something that was expected to be like a daily occurrence. mm -hmm. It wasn't a big deal. Yeah, they didn't
1: have TV back
0: then. mm -hmm. So you want to get the kids out of the house? Just go to the, you know, local theater and watch, you know, one or two movies.
1: And, you know, serials went out of fashion in the early 50s because television came along, and that's the sort of entertainment, you know, serialized entertainment moved to TV.
0: And serials also weren't being programmed anymore because theaters wanted like bigger productions. It would just be this one film that you want to come and see.
1: From the very early days, serials were always kind of a disreputable form.
0: Uh, In one of the books I read recently, uh, the author said they played in scratch theaters, a term I have never heard used before. What
1: does scratch? Is that like a grindhouse? I assume
0: it's a grindhouse, yes. And the most fondly
1: remembered or the best remembered serials, at least, are the ones from the 30s and the 40s, the sound serials, typically the ones that were based on comic strip or radio heroes. Uh, Superman, Batman, Dick Tracy. These characters had their screen debuts in low-budget serials.
0: But even before then in the silent era, listeners may have heard the name Perils of Pauline. Uh, There was the Hazards of Helen. Uh, As you may be noticing by these titles, women were usually the stars in the early silent serials when uh, it was probably a little bit disreputable to be an actor. So women had the main role. (laughs) And then when sound came along women were kicked to the curb and it was about manly men who had action and adventures
1: yeah the early serials i think the very first serial is what happened to mary from 1912 which came out of the edison company and you know this was three years before birth of a nation so the concept of a feature film was still in its infancy and the edison company said well people probably can't sustain their attention for a whole you know 90 minutes two hours so we'll split this long-form story into a bunch of chapters you know feature films survived and thrived and yet the serials continued as a popular form of entertainment in their own right. Those silent serials... Typically, they would be about, you know, some naive uh, but lovable young woman who's had an inheritance, and there are these dastardly, distrustful men who are trying to steal the inheritance from her. This is where that archetype of, like, a woman...
0: Tying her to the train tracks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Putting her in front of a buzzsaw.
1: The action and adventure and science fiction and especially Western genres dominated serials in the 30s and 40s. Westerns, because they were cheap to make. And, you know, it's interesting, these serials like they existed on the fringes of Hollywood many of many of the big studios had their like shorts department and their B movie departments um, that made these films and there were also poverty row studios like republic that made these films and they kind of had their own star system so there was you know as you mentioned buster crab there was kirk allen who played superman there was ralph bird who played dick tracy and ray crash corrigan from <laughs> undersea kingdom
0: even gene autry uh, got a start in <laughs> serials uh the singing cowboy himself
1: there were a number of future stars who emerged from serials, including Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, well, Bela Lugosi, uh, is an example of a star who sort of fell down (laughs) into serials. (laughs) And, you know, in the thirties and forties, many of the serial directors were like, Old silent film war horses who, you know, had fallen out of fashion and just wanted to work.
0: You know, as long as you can crank them out really fast. A lot of these serials were also directed by two people because one of them could prepare the next day's shoot while the other one was shooting.
1: Yeah, this is not a form where uh, there, there were people who were very precious about like their auteur status.
0: But before we get to the classic serials, as most people know, let's jump to France, to 1915, where uh, Louis Foyad is directing a little serial called Les Vampires, which, if you're listening to this, you have seen some of its iconography somewhere in your travails through the world of cinema.
1: But you probably haven't seen the
0: whole thing because it's eight hours long. Eight hours long! Yes, you feel those eight hours too. So, I mean, I, I've
1: seen most of it in in my life, mm-hmm. um, I did. I only revisited parts of it for this week.
0: This is a piece of work that the French critics went bananas over because, to them, it illustrated this kind of surrealistic, almost Dada take on the world, where Le Vampire is about a reporter who's trying to crack this. Uh, ring of criminals called the vampires and essentially anybody can be a vampire and any object could be poisoned or it could also be a door leading to somewhere else <laughs> and it's a world that is in constant flux where nothing is what it seems.
1: Unlike, say, D.W. Griffith who is working around this time and whose camera work was very, you know, ostentatious and showy, Les Vampires is often quite static um, but its compositions are sort of dense and imaginative and also you know, I think there's, there's, you know, as you mentioned, this is a movie that uh, the surrealists love, and it was an acknowledged influence on everybody from Louis Benwell to Alain Resnais to all the way to Olivier Assayas, whose film Irma Vep is a direct homage to it.
0: Uh, I Irma th- Vep, wait a minute, that's an anagram of live up here.
1: I think there's something about these images. Like because they're quite static, but because what they depict is so bizarre,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know these people, the you know the the sexy woman in the skin tight catwoman like outfit, uh, or just just strange and disquieting things like severed heads, mm. uh, or or the uh, abandoned wartime era streets of Paris. You know, because it's static, you sort of come towards it. It's you know, like uh, I don't know. Maybe I would be wrong to compare it to the uh, spiritual style that Paul Schrader describes, but like you, transcendental, <laughs> yes, the transcendental style. But there's something I think that's kind of like participatory about when you watch
0: beer. something like this that's eight hours long, and most people now will be consuming it in that form. Mm-hmm. It is much slower than even the 40 serials, so you do have to let yourself be kind of lost in it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to get bored really fast. and. What's interesting about Les Vampires is it, it almost decompresses as it goes along. Because at the beginning, you're getting these 10, 15-minute little segments. It's 10 episodes in total. And as it g- goes along, each episode is stretched <laughs> longer. And it kind of bummed me out because it felt like that 15 minutes of content was stretched over an hour. And the highest points for me were about midway through the first four hours.
1: You know, one of the reasons I was interested in doing this topic, serials, was the fact that we consume cereals reels now those of us who do consume them which not are, you are not not generally me and not many people will consume them like maybe over two nights or mm-hmm. something like almost like a feature film and that's not how people watched them at the time they were uh, watched once every week probably miss a couple chapters you know <laughs> yep. uh, who, no- who knows it doesn't really matter <laughs> only the first and the last chapter are really all that important
0: it's about the journey <laughs>
1: yeah um, so like we're consuming it in an entirely different way and and that's like a fascinating experiment I, I dug up this quote from the New York Review of Books by Jeffrey O'Brien uh, from 1998 talking about lay Vampire. he says a serial works on the viewer not only while being watched but in between times it piles up suggestions and and leaves them suspended so they can filter through days of recollection and anticipation, through dreams haunted by its personae, through moments of reverie in which the mad involuntarily rearranges half remembered fragments. And I mean that's kind of how I remember serials, you well, know? I mean, like
0: it's all a big soup. Like you said, because television came around, they just their form change, right? Goes to 21 minutes it becomes even more uh, repetitive because you want to be confronted with something that you know every week and not to be challenged Mm. too much. And there can't be too much of a cliffhanger because everything needs to reset so you can just catch them out of order. That's something that was interesting about serials is that they did have that story run from point A to point Z. And while there was recaps at the beginning, it just made the assumption that, oh no, you've probably seen the other parts. Doesn't really matter, but here you're thrown into the story.
1: You know, there were two serials that I watched as a kid Mm. and enjoyed, and I'm guessing they're probably the two serials that are watched by the most people right now, Yep, just because they have the most famous character, and that's 1943's Batman.
0: A terrible serial.
1: And 1949's Batman and Robin
0: not that much better. No. Well, Robin is still in both of them. You may know 1943's Batman as the most ill-fitting suit to appear in the Batman saga. And
1: also the most racist Batman adventure.
0: Yeah, at the time he's fighting the Japanese and, oh boy, they're portrayed exactly the way that you think they would be portrayed in a film made by a Poverty Row studio in 1943.
1: So this week I revisited 1943's Batman. Uh, And I would like to talk about it a bit because I invested three and a half hours into watching You
0: watched all it. i watched all of it and it was just a nostalgic didn't you get experience. enough like did it come back to you did you like remember parts that you would play on i'm sure the walmart long play vhs <laughs> yeah that's
1: that was what i had actually yep. um you know it was an interesting kind of nostalgic experience watching it i mean i was watching it thinking what did i get out of this as a kid
0: batman that's Bat- what you got that, out of it. That's what
1: I got out. Like, I was an uncritical consumer of Batman, mm. anything Batman. And in fact, the fact that it was in black and white and it was sort of slow and dark and hard to look at. Is it adult? <laughs>
0: yeah, it made it kind of interesting. Citizen you know? Kane, Batman, one and the same. <laughs> yeah. So, the 1943
1: Batman serial, you know, an interesting thing about serials is because they were directed to children, they were heavily censored. So, you couldn't show somebody being a vigilante. Mm-hmm. So, in this one, Batman is uh, fully deputized by Uncle Sam to go after uh, (laughs) Japanese
0: uh, uh, spies. And you may recall from the comics and the Tim Burton movies, uh, Batman in the serial is introduced at his desk in the Batcave, (laughs) looking very sad because he has no Japanese uh, to go and intern somewhere in a camp.
1: Did you know that this serial was the first appearance of the Batcave in any medium? I did not know that. Incredible. It's also... This serial also was the first thing to make Alfred the butler skinny and have a mustache.
0: Was he, like, fat and jovial before that? Yes. Hmm, okay.
1: But the plot involves uh, the sinister Japanese spy Dr. Daka, played with relish by J. Carol Nash, who is operating in the deep sub-basement of a funhouse in Little Tokyo, which has been abandoned because, as the narrator informs us, a wise government rounded up the, uh, uh, uh slur, slur, slur. <laughs> yep. Um, so you One know, of the
0: slurs can be found on packages of Mr. Noodle, now at your local shopping market.
1: So it's a, it's a pretty racist cereal, and it's also um, shockingly boring. So boring. And, you know, as I was watching it, like, I must have got, like, Stockholm Syndrome or something, but I was almost watching it the way that I watched Les Vampires, where it's like, The images are very dark and there's, you know, it's so badly shot that there's like almost accidental beauty in some of it. (laughs) And and I'm looking at it like, oh, this this is it. The Lambert Hillier, the the American fuyad. look at this shot where there are no lights and you can just see a glimmer of the Batman utility belt.
0: So I think uh, 1943's Batman is a good example of the people making this serial, the directors, the writers, the producers going, it's for kids. Who cares? Just (laughs) shit it out there, and it doesn't really matter. (laughs) The flip side to that would be Republic Pictures. Now, we've spoken a little bit of Republic Pictures, I believe, in our Poverty Row episode.
1: Not enough, though, because they're the best Poverty Row studio.
0: 100%. And they were known as the best serial directors, bar none. Even better than companies like Columbia or RKO, who only did one serial that starred Lon Chaney Jr. Because Columbia,
1: who made the Batman and Superman serials, Because they were a big studio, they didn't care.
0: Do you know that Republic actually lost the rights to the Superman series because... I believe whatever form DC Comics took at that time wanted more creative control over uh, what Republic wanted to do and Republic went, no way we don't want to do that. They actually changed the scripts they had written for their Superman to something else then a few years later, almost like an F.U. to DC Comics decided to take the Superman rip-off Captain Marvel aka now known as Shazam, who at that point was not owned by DC Comics was an independent uh, comic book publication that was selling better than Superman at that time and to make their own version of it and people should note that Captain Marvel or the adventures of Captain Marvel as the serial is known was the first portrayal of a comic book superhero on any screen that's
1: right 1941 it beat Batman to the screen by two years the Adventures of Captain Marvel is out now on a, on a newish Blu-ray from Kino, by the way. And it's a, a real treat.
0: So this is a serial directed by John English and William Whitney. Now, John English worked on a bunch of serials. He directed a bunch of Westerns. He's not held in much acclaim. William Whitney is the king of serials. He is essentially the director that when you talk about great serials, his name is attached to them. Whether it be Spy Smasher, Dick Tracy Returns, he approached the serial as someone who genuinely cared. He talks about that he started very young in the industry. He started like all the great poverty row filmmakers as an editor. And he would work on these serials and he would see these stuntmen do these uh, fight scenes that were just Improvised. The stuntman would just go at it, break a bunch of stuff over their heads until all of them had fallen down.
1: By the way, that's another problem with the Batman serial. Mm. The fights in it are so bad and like Batman's cape keeps getting <laughs> fucking messed up and falling off. The Batman serial directly inspired the shitty fights in the Adam West Batman.
0: But that is not the case in Captain Marvel because William Whitney and this is not a joke, he said this multiple times himself, went to Warner Brothers and saw Busby Berkeley working on musical numbers and went back to Republic and and said, why don't we just make fight scenes like that, where we utilize camera and editing to sell these sequences as opposed to just hoping the stuntmen can pull it off from whatever locked off angle that we set down the camera
1: by the way if the name william whitney sounds familiar to you it's probably because he's the director that quentin tarantino prefers to john ford
0: <laughs> that sounds like quentin tarantino was uh shooting his mouth off at the time being
1: deliberately provocative but yeah. william
0: whitney is hes a, a great director he's a genuinely great director yeah. i actually only heard about him when I was reading a book written by Patreon subject Bertin Trevernier, where he was interviewing Quentin Tarantino, and they were talking about William Whitney and films like Paratroop Command and uh, Darktown Strutters. William
1: Whitney also did all the best Roy Rogers westerns.
0: All the Trigger movies, yeah. like uh, uh, Trigger
1: Junior and uh, uh, the the Golden Stallion, I think it's called.
0: If you look at his filmography, there's like a hundred just kind of like generic looking westerns, but Whitney just brings his all to everything he He's does. He's a good
1: action director.
0: So Captain Marvel is, uh, I mean, if you guys aren't lining up for uh, the new movie coming out in two weeks, you don't know the story by heart. Because
1: remember, folks, Captain Marvel is not the Captain Marvel you know today. Captain it's Marvel is Shazam.
0: Shazam, yeah. They changed the name. Yeah, to Shazam. And, that's, and so it's about a... I want to say a young boy played by a 20-something-year-old man (laughs) named Billy Batson that is given by the gods the ability to turn into a big muscle man by saying the word Shazam. He's struck by lightning, and then he beats up the bad guys. The plot begins with
1: an archaeological expedition to Siam, where a powerful device called the Golden Scorpion has been found, and if all of its lenses are are aligned it will shoot a ray blast that uh, of enormous strength
0: it can make gold it can set off volcanoes it can disintegrate people a very popular weapon in lots of cereals and
1: folks you're going to see a lot of this as <laughs> yep. the cereal goes on but the scientists who discover it think this is too dangerous we all have to take one of the lenses and take it back to our homelands well enter a villain also known as the scorpion he's got a big um a hood that he wears over his face a
0: classic uh, serial villain the kind of a masked foe who has a deep, booming voice that is usually not the actor who is revealed to be the villain in the final part where they pull off his mask.
1: And also, coincidentally, it is during this journey to Siam where the young reporter Billy Batson uh, discovers this uh, old wizard, I guess. Yeah, yeah, his
0: god who gives him the powers of Shazam. Now, if you watch all of this in
1: like one or two sittings, as Justin and I did, Um, it gets quite repetitive. And, you know, I I was reminded that actually that's probably a reason why I liked the Batman serial so much as a kid, because when you're a kid, you enjoy the repetition. Mm -hmm. You enjoy the formula.
0: Well, I I feel like as opposed to some other non-Willy Whitney directed serials, at least Shazam is like Tiring in the way that, like, riding a roller coaster for three hours would be tiring. The, the characters never stop to take a breath. They're always running from scene to scene. None of the serial start with like, ah, it's been a few days since this happened. Now let's go on to the next adventure. It's like one constant straight line with the cliffhangers being the endpoints. And reading William Whitney's biography, which has a very convoluted name, it's like, in a door, out a door, in a fight. I'm the guy behind the door. Something like that. He talks about the writers would start with the cliffhangers and then write the story around those, (laughs) which is hilarious to me.
1: One of the reasons The Adventures of Captain Marvel is so beloved is because it had relatively sophisticated special effects for a a serial.
0: Yeah, they were done by uh, the Lidecker brothers, Howard and Theodore, who kind of for the first time, put a flying man on screen. So
1: the stunt man, not Tom Tyler, but the stunt man's name was Dave Sharp. And he had this unique ability to, you know, jump off a building and like put his body in a a rigid, uh, like erect form. (laughs) Uh, not not his penis. His bo- <laughs> yes, that's right. His, his body, and to make it look like he was flying before he plummeted.
0: Oh, I thought you were uh, making a joke about the fact that they built a giant rigid Shazam dummy that they threw through the air. So,
1: okay, they had this stunt man who could get it, who could contort his body in ju- just the right way as he jumped, and then it would. Seamlessly Mm. cut to this rigid Shazam uh, dummy.
0: Yeah, it looks okay. It looks good. It's in the wide shot. You got to consider this is 1941, and there's also some really good rear projection work Mm. of Tom Tyler like flying as Shazam, and that same stuntman was. I mean according to some interviews that I heard one of the first people to make a personal size trampoline so he could jump out of frame and when he comes into the shot he comes down on the villains as if he's coming down from a flight.
1: There's a lot of other fun special effects too like there's that scene where he's in a cave and the lava mm-hmm. uh, he... like
0: right towards the camera like yeah. the miniature as it just overtakes him. And it
1: all looks kind of cheesy in a very uh, very lovable way.
0: <laughs> yeah you could tell the people doing it actually care about what they're doing and they're just not like shitting it out. They want entertain and thrill the people who would come and see this. And
1: you know, Tom Tyler in that skin-tight costume.
0: Ooh, mama. <laughs> and uh Tom Tyler who doesn't have any dialogue supposedly because the producers uh hated his voice. He has a little speech at the end that he kind of struggles through. <laughs> and you know, this is the beginning of superheroes and just like, you know, the pulp era Batman, Shazam probably has a higher body count than the villains in this film. He mows people down with a machine gun.
1: Something that I like about this serial is it does kind of feel like a like it, it's mostly shot around I guess like Bronson Canyon mm-hmm. and uh, other sort of rural locations in California, and it just looks like a bunch of like stuntmen and. Uh, D-list actors, you know, running around uh, like children in a backyard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. I think it's a little bit dismissive. No, but... I
1: think it's quite charming. Like, yeah. you, like it's a, it's a very likable film.
0: Somewhere William Whitney rises out of his grave and he's like, I'll show Will. Uh, very
1: competently filmed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's better than competently right. filmed.
1: I really like The Adventures of Captain Marvel.
0: <laughs> yeah. And William Whitney would, uh, after this, he would go on to do a bunch of mounty serials, which was like really popular in Hollywood around this time, before kind of transitioning to mostly feature westerns and, uh, as his last film was, a exploitation film parody, Darkstown Struthers.
1: So while serials in this specific form uh, obviously went out of circulation, the, the, the idea of serialized entertainment itself has never gone away. I mean, people often mention that the Marvel Cinematic Universe right now is uh, sort of similar to the old old time serials, you know, mm-hmm. it follow it follows that serialized format where they have sort of cliffhangers and one leads into another one.
0: And you want to know what happens next. I- I mean, the obvious difference
1: is that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is like at the forefront of the popular consciousness right now, whereas these movies were regarded as time killers for indiscriminating children.
0: Uh, There's an interesting little footnote to uh, the history of serials, which was in 65, 66, they had a brief resurgence when a company decided to capitalize on the success of the Batman TV show by releasing Batman 1943 in theaters as one big three hour chunk. They ran all the serials together and it was actually a smash. Hit. And so when Republic, or whatever company Republic had taken the form of at this time, decided to re release Spice Masher and Captain Marvel in theaters in the same format, both those films were flops. And one of the critics that I was uh, reading about said that the reason they think that the Republic ones didn't do that well was because people went to go laugh at the Batman serials. And when they saw The Adventures of Captain Marvel, which was very earnest and well-made and genuinely entertaining, that is not the experience they wanted going to the cinemas. They wanted something they could catcall and make fun of and kind of like lord over. And when they didn't get that, they're like, nah, nah, that's not good.
1: And you know, it's kind of too bad that the Batman serials are probably the best known ones now because Mm -hmm. they have, you know, helped contribute to the, I guess, the diminished of the reputation of serials, right?
0: The problem with serials is that they're friggin' long. Mm-hmm. And even though people now binge streaming series, to look at something old timey and mm-hmm. to binge it or even to watch it in chunks is too much mm-hmm. for people, especially that a lot of them are just not that good, Yeah, <laughs> which is a problem.
1: And like they were specifically designed to not be binged. Mm-hmm. They were no. designed to be watched separated by a week.
0: I think there's something really um, attractive about this idea of you go to the theater and, not just to see this one thing, but you also get a package around it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I want to see the next serial, and then maybe I'll catch the movie, or I want to see this movie. Oh, this is a really cool serial. I should come back next week to see what happens next. Mm-hmm. That that doesn't really exist anymore, unless you count those first twenty-five minutes of ads that play before movies. Yeah. something that you want to catch.
1: Yeah, I mean in Canada, we get to see those cartoons with the little popcorns. Who are <laughs> no, <being let laughs> that is not true.
0: Unless you go to the drive in, the Oakville Five, they still play the. Let's all go to the drive like oh, lobby. Uh, What I'm trying to say is that a millionaire should give us money to make cereals again. And we'll put them in front of movies.
1: It would be hard to tell the story chronologically because people aren't going to see one movie and then the next movie and then the next movie. Well,
0: you're just going to have to recreate that need to go to the movies like they used to be in the 40s. Trying to ignore the fact that you have the internet, you have television, you have movies at home. I think we can do it. Let's do it. Okay, this is our mission. This is what the Important Cinema Club is going to do.
1: Bring back cereals. (laughs) Justin, do we have any letters this week?
0: Yes, we do. And as per usual, you can send us uh, questions, comments at podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to go and rate and review us on iTunes. So our first letter is from Jeff Wood, and it goes, The Return of John Landis. Hi, pals. I know you are also obsessed with The Movies That Made Me. So I'm wondering what you think of what seems to be the grand comeback podcast tour of John Landis on that and The Mick Garris Show. I'm not suggesting you should be in exile, but the weird story about how his reputation suddenly returned ten years ago and then the brief discussion of the Twilight Zone reboot made me want to awkwardly look away from my monitor at work for some reason. I understand if you're already spent, after talking about John Landis so much, on the episode that you dedicated to him. Anywho, love this podcast. And then also some of your side projects. Keep up the great work. Will, did you listen to the John Landis episode of The Movies That Made Me? And by that, I mean, did I send you a text message in the morning saying, John Landis is on The Movies That Made Me episode? I thought I sent you that text message. (laughs) Maybe we both did at the same time. All that
1: matters is we were both very excited that John Landis was on one of our favorite podcasts, The Movies That Made Me. Wait
0: a minute. Didn't John Landis commit manslaughter when he worked on The Twilight Zone? Um,
1: I believe he was acquitted by a jury of his peers.
0: But yes, he yeah, did. He, he, we yeah, talked he did. about it on he the John did. Landis yeah. episode. Well, you know, people uh, contain multitudes. They do. And John Landis is someone who's been friends forever with Joe Dante. And I don't think anybody uh, that I've listened to on a podcast, no movies, More than those two guys. I mean,
1: you know, this is the thing. Uh, I mean, just because John Landis is guilty of manslaughter doesn't mean it's not also fun to listen to him talk about movies. Mm -hmm. Um, These two truths can coexist.
0: It is weird when John Landis asks, why wasn't I asked to be on Jordan Peele's new Twilight Zone uh, TV show? I can think of a reason. (laughs) John, I, I think I have some reasons we could share with you.
1: John Landis is a guy who I like, I really enjoy here hearing talk about movies
0: yes uh, i do too so. and as far as the career resurgence I don't I, know. when's the last movie he made uh Burke and Hare. Burke and Hare. yes and other than that I, I think maybe he's worked a little bit in television i mean john landis was
1: sort of an interesting case because like he had that twilight zone manslaughter case and then all of a sudden he was back with coming to america and the thriller video yeah
0: it's like nothing happened yeah and he just went right back to work and I mean, we talked about it on the episode, but he was, like, very dismissive of his role in that, like, accident yeah. that killed Vic Morrow and the uh, boys that were on the set of that film. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, sad thoughts. But uh, Movies That Made Me, fun podcast to listen to. Yeah. Even though John Landis just launches into a story unrelated to anything going on, and you can feel Joe Dante being like, Ugh, come on. Come on, John. Like, let's get back on topic. <laughs>
1: You know, I would love for Joe Dante to be my friend.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think there's an episode of our uh, podcast that has exactly that title. And
1: yet, does he reach out?
0: No. (laughs) No, he hasn't. Has he ever liked any of our tweets? No. No. Very sad. uh, We'll keep working on it. Listen, in Port Cinema Club, we're going to bring cereals back, and we're also going to befriend, more like an acquaintance, Joe Dante at some point. But I don't want him to hear this. No, no. That's embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) So this week on our Patreon, we uh, talked about a very little scene film that we believe deserves more attention, James Cameron's Terminator 2. Uh, it's a fun discussion, and if you didn't listen to last week's episode on Carolee Schneeman, our Patreon that week was about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So really... Anyone who's not a Patreon subscriber, we're just, like, laying the easy stuff out for you. Uh, and we want you to subscribe and listen to these episodes. And then you can discover the whole back catalog that has such great discussions as... Uh, the guinea pig series. <laughs> That's right guinea pig series um cannibal scary, holocaust scary movie too that's right <laughs> all the good stuff all the classics as long along with the shining and terminator 2 which you can now listen to uh, by becoming a patreon subscriber for five dollars a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club because what is like you said the serial other than the action blockbuster
1: next week speaking of action blockbusters <laughs> we will be talking about one of the most acclaimed documentary filmmakers of all time yes i refer to frederick Wiseman.
0: High school himself? <laughs> That's right.
1: Uh, the, the king of cinema verite.
0: Who was asked during a Q&A, how do you get into filmmaking? And he said, marry a rich rich wife. <laughs> <laughs> that explains everything. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. He is a documentarian who made such acclaimed... Canonical uh, works. Yeah. When you talk about documentaries, you're talking about Frederick Wiseman and his work like Welfare or Juvenile Court... Or uh, the one about the library he made last year. That's right.
1: A a beautiful soul who makes beautiful movies about ordinary people and and the institutions that they are run
0: and are run by. I'm glad that his films really reveal all this evil stuff and they just stop happening. Right, Will? That's right. Right? So,
1: (laughs) we'll be talking about his landmark film, High School. We'll be talking about Titicut Follies. Is that how you pronounce that? Man, I don't know. I kept typing it into Google
0: and writing it incorrectly i never
1: actually said that title out loud <laughs> yeah,
0: you don't say it with all your friends when they're like ah you got any good recommendations yeah. and you're like oh yes of course td cut follies <laughs> yeah
1: and we'll be talking about one of his longer films too mm. uh which one you'll have to tune in to find out
0: so that's what we're doing next week and until then my I'm, I'm will sloan thanks for listening
1: justin you're a true soldier of cinema mm, that's me like, you're the kind of guy who will travel great distances, but
0: like, like it, it <laughs> doesn't
1: matter if we want to go to Rochester, we want to go to Etobicoke, we want to do something to, just to see a movie, you're, you're there.
0: As long as I have enough money to go there and or a ride. That's In right. In this case, I had a ride and we're going to Ottawa, where my parents live. So, <laughs> man, taken care of. So, last weekend, you did this... Uh, incredible marathon in Ottawa at the Mayfair Theatre, I believe. That's right. The one uh, run by Lee DeMarb, director of Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter. A one-screen, like... not Toronto doesn't even have any cinemas like this. It's actually kind of, like, leveled, so there's, like, stairs going up. Oh, nice. So you no one will ever sit in front of anybody else, and it has, like, um, the balconies, like... Near the theater. Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful looking old timey movie theater. The perfect place for uh, Ben Ruffett's Hamilton Trash Cinema to show eight movies <laughs> in one 12 hour go.
1: And what movies are we talking about here? Are we talking about, I don't know, occult classics like Phantom of the Paradise,
0: Phantasm, the Princess
1: Bride? No. Uh, we're we're not talking, talking about,
0: about those. Uh, movies like Dream a Little Evil, Scream Dream, Mutilations, Soul Tangler. Blood Hunter, uh, Satan's Place movies that you're like, well, I've never heard of those, mostly because they were original films that were released only on VHS in limited quantities. And while some of them have become kind of cultish classics, uh, Mutilations was released on DVD by Massacre Video, they have remained under the radar. And Ben Ruffett, we've talked about how Hamilton Trash Cinema before. There's an article about him where I met him for the first time in uh, the Important Cinema Club Journal. He brought all of his original VHS tapes, the tapes that these films were released on, essentially the release prints of something like The Adventures of Captain Marvel. Oh. And he played them in the cinema to a crowd who I don't know if everybody was ready for what was coming. There were a bunch of uh, yuck yucks all the way in the back row mm-hmm. who talked at the top of their voice during the first movie until I got up and I went, hey guys, can you please be quiet? Yeah. And then they left after the second movie. So Because yeah. this is the kind of thing that
1: separates the men from the boys. Mm-hmm. 12 or so hours of uh, VHS projected uh, strangeness.
0: So when I went in, I originally read it to be from noon to midnight until a week before we left to go on the trip. Ben was like, it's called Up All Night. It's from midnight to noon." And I was like, holy fuck, I am a 31-year-old man. (laughs) I will not be able to stay up from midnight to 12. So I got my Pepto-Bismol. If I eat two salty snacks, I got um, Tylenol. And I went with my brother and Ben to watch these movies. And I'm going to say this, and this is 100% the truth... Neither of us fell asleep during those 12 hours. Oh, my God. Which is crazy because the kind of movies that he was playing, I would have assumed that, like, it's, you know, when you're watching kind of shot on video stuff, it would, like, lull you to sleep. Nope. Movies like Attack of the Beast creatures, just, like, everybody was super jazzed while we were watching it. And it just goes to show, like, in the Hamilton Trash article cinema that I wrote that when you watch them at home, there's a disconnect to it where you're like, man, not enough is happening. I'd, I'd rather do something else, watch it of the corner of my eye or watch it in a party setting where everybody's making jokes. But when you're watching it in a cinema in silence with a group, there's kind of like a weird mystical aura that goes <laughs> over everybody. And my brother, who's difficult on films, he like even said that he almost loved all of them. And even the ones that he was a little bit ambivalent about, there were parts that like, just, you know, wowed him.
1: What was the best movie?
0: <laughs> So the best movie that I would say if someone said, oh, I want to watch a film, what would you recommend from the lineup? I would say Mutilations because it's I don't know how this is not more of a hit because it's like the alien version of Winter Beast Mm -hmm. where it's a bunch of regional actors that um, go to an Evil Dead 2 cabin. None of them have any kind of inflection in any of the lines that they're doing. But there's all these colored lights. They had some money. So there's crane moves and stuff like that used in the incorrect way. Tons of gore and really goofy stop-motion monsters throughout all of it. It's essentially like a pure entertainment when it comes to these kind of regional horror films. But the one that I love the most was a little uh, film called Blood Hunter. And it was... A film that I hadn't heard nothing about. It has no IMDb reviews. I believe that it was completely unavailable, but my brother did some hunting, and it looks like one of the actors posted it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It only has a few hundred hits. And it's a writer, director, star, who casts himself as the coolest vampire in the world, who's a vigilante, who says puns like when he meets a bunch of hunters. He goes oh dear, I don't think it's hunting season. And he goes around just kind of hanging out, being a cool dude and murdering any bad guys that get in his way.
1: I'm adding it to my watch list right now.
0: And I got to say that this is a film that has a level of technical incompetence that I have not seen in any other movie that has been this entertaining it's shot on 35 millimeter film but it's edited in a way that during conversations there will be a two second break before someone gives the response <laughs> to a line so it looks like everyone is either a zombie or they're really dumb so the character will be like hey you should murder that person over there it's also shot in kentucky and then it'll cut to the other person going I did not murder them. (laughs) It is so much fun. And like me and my brother were both like five stars. Like when we like, we each have different kind of film tastes, but the movie just impacted us in that way. And it really deserves to become a cult classic.
1: So I'm half jealous of you. And then half also knowing that I would have been destroyed by this. Marathon.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know what the trick was is that I got popcorn and I only ate a little bit of it. And I just drank out of a water bottle the entire time. Mm. And that's probably what allowed me to stay awake, uh, through the entirety of this festival. And you know, it's probably going to happen again sooner than you think. So if what I'm talking about sounds like an experience that you want to have, uh, Uh, dear listener, and it is, because it's amazing. Make sure that when it gets announced of when it's going to happen again, that you be there, because these movies will never exist in this permutation. These movies will probably never show on the big screen, and that's truly the best way to enjoy them.